This is an ABC podcast. Hello, great to be back with you for another year of conversations. The Enchanted April is a novel that was first published in 1922 and it's dedicated to all who appreciate wisteria and sunshine. The author of this escapist fairy tale was Elizabeth von Arnhem, known to her adoring readers as simply Elizabeth. She was born under another name in Sydney, but as her fame as an author grew, Elizabeth did her best to keep her private life not just private, but secret. And there were plenty of secrets for her to keep. After reinventing herself as a Prussian countess, Elizabeth had a tempestuous affair with H.G. Wells and then a disastrous marriage to a man dubbed the Wicked Earl. Joyce Morgan has delved into the surprising life of Elizabeth von Arnhem in her book, The Countess from Kirribilli. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Sarah. Good to be with you. How did you first get interested in this woman who who was a literary sensation in her day but is pretty much forgotten now? I started by reading, I'd read The Enchanted April, which is probably her best known book. And as you point out, you know, a very romantic book. And then I went, I picked up a copy somewhere of her, another book called Vera, which is like the very opposite. It's a dark Gothic tale. And I was really intrigued. I thought they were only written about a year apart. And I thought, how does a woman go from this romantic tale of wisteria and sunshine to a tale of really coercive control and domestic abuse? And who was she? And then I learned that she'd been born in Australia. And I thought, gosh, I, you know, how has she fallen between the cracks of history? Who is she? And the more I looked into her life and her writing and realised what a huge uh, success she'd been for 40 years, and yet the name, you know, barely registers all the time I've, I've been working on the book. I probably could count on one hand how many people had actually heard of her. <laughs> it's a salutary warning for any of us who think that fame is guaranteed to outlive us, isn't it? <laughs> no, that's all fame is fleeting. <laughs> how do you think she would have felt about having a biography written about her? I think she would absolutely hate it. She was so private and to keep herself, to shield herself, she was quite prepared, not just, you know, to obfuscate, but she would straight out tell bald-faced lies and she didn't want anything known about her life at all. So I think she would not be pleased. But, you know, she was a very contradictory woman. And what I realised was while she would have hated a biography about her, she was a great devourer of biographies herself. So there was a wonderful paradox there. So she was known or became known to the world as Elizabeth. But who was she when she entered the world? What name was she given after she was born? She was born in Sydney, in Kirribilli, as Mary Beecham. And they were a a prosperous family of merchants. Her father was English and she spent her very early years on Kirribilli Point. What was their home like? Their, Their home, by the time Elizabeth was born as the youngest of five children, was very prosperous indeed. Where she grew up was right on Kirribilli Point, very close to Admiralty House, the Governor General's residence, which is where her uncle lived, actually. So, you know, they were very wealthy indeed by then. But the family hadn't really started out that way. 
Her father, Henry, was English and had come out to Australia as an adult to try and make his fortune as an importer, and which he did. But her mother was born in Tasmania and she'd grown up on a farm in Launceston, very impoverished family background. Her father had kind of abandoned the Elizabeth's mother as a teenager and she was pretty much rescued from destitution by a relative in Melbourne. So there was always in the background of that family an awareness of a a much tougher life, particularly on her mother's part. And I think that probably stayed with the family. And, you know, and Henry's fortunes fluctuated. He lost money in an Australian bank crash. His fortunes did go up and down. Nonetheless, they did manage to live extremely well indeed. Why did they decide to leave Australia from this sort of prosperous life they were living in in Kirribilli? Well, it wasn't meant to be a relocation to Britain. It was supposed to be a year-long holiday. And the uncle who lived in Admiralty House, he was over in England and he said, look, join us for a year, bring all the kids, you know, our families will have a great time. The climate will be good, which seems surprising. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> does. <laughs> in Victorian England. Um, we'll have a lovely time and it'll be a year's holiday. So they all, the, the family, Henry and the five kids, and Elizabeth was about three and a half then, they sailed back to England where Henry had been born. And they had, you know, some, some time in Britain and travelled around quite a bit. And But as the time passed, they never came back. Although for years, Henry, I think her father, wanted to come back. And he made a couple of journeys out to Australia. And I think he was all in his mind was always, we'll come back here. But, you know, he realised he could work his business from London just as well. The family eventually moved into a chalet near Lake Geneva in Switzerland and Elizabeth's parents promptly took off on a a three-month trip around Europe without their kids. What happened to Elizabeth's sister Charlotte when their parents were gone? Oh, well, what happened was Elizabeth's older sister, Charlotte, who was about 14 then, she actually became pregnant. And we don't know who the father was. We know only that she gave birth to a son who was never, ever mentioned again. And perhaps he he was healthy, so perhaps he was given away. And what surprised me when I went through the family papers, because Henry left a lot of letters, he was writing letters back to his wife, to Louis, Elizabeth's mother. And his reaction when he learned of her pregnancy and the birth wasn't like what you'd expect from a Victorian father. In fact, his letter really surprised me. He said when he learned the baby had been born, well, thank God that's over and she'll get her figure back soon. (gasps) And she was just 14. 14. Wow. And, And there's no further record of what happened to this little boy. No, the family was living in Switzerland at the time. So likely it was kept secret from other relatives in England. So you could hush things up, but there is no record. That child is never, ever mentioned again. So we really don't know what's happened to that child. And what happened to to Charlotte after that? I mean, did it ruin her prospects for, for making a good match? Charlotte made an extremely good match, actually, with the son of a former Lord Mayor of London, um, a young man by the name of George Waterloo. And she went on to have about five or six children. But it must have been a shocking thing for little Elizabeth to, to notice, however aware she was of it. 
And look, I think Elizabeth was a very aware little girl and she would have been about eight when her sister was pregnant and she must have, you know, observed what happened. And I wonder what if it did have an effect on her view of motherhood, marriage, because she then saw her, her sister lose other babies and her sister's marriage was not a happy one either. So I think it, it probably did have an effect. You know, she was a knowing child. Her father, Henry, he sounds like quite an unusual father just from that reaction to the pregnancy, Joyce. What about his views on education for girls? What did he want for his daughters? That was unusual too because he really wanted his two daughters well-educated as well as all the boys in the family. So he made sure that they, you know, they had tutors. They later went to school, which is a bit unusual. So he was like, he really saw education as the absolute key for them. And so again, that was very unusual for the time to, you know, because the fate of women then was, you know, to be wives and mothers. But he wanted them very well educated. And, and he was, you know, he was a great reader. He'd had, clearly had an education himself. And he also encouraged the, they're all a very musical family. And that was encouraged as well. And so they had a good education. Did he and Elizabeth spend much time one-on-one together as she was growing up? Yes, they did, because Elizabeth was the baby in the family. So the other kids were off, you know, getting married, growing up forging ahead. So she would often accompany him wandering around London. Like he had this restless energy and she would accompany him. And I did get the sense that she was likely his his favorite child. He was certainly very amused by her because in his journals, he often quotes little witty things she said. I mean, okay, lots of parents do that. But She's the only child that he refers to by her quotes. The others, all he really records is that they've got, you know, the flu or childhood illnesses or something. But Elizabeth's kind of witty little remarks fill his journals. They took a trip to Rome together when she was 22. Who did she meet in Rome? She met a man by the name of the Count von Arnhem. That was at a musical soiree and both... Elizabeth and the Count were extremely musical. Now, he was a man quite a few, about 15 years older than her. He'd been recently, he'd lost his first wife and child about only about a year earlier. But at this soiree, it was clear that he was very taken by Elizabeth. And it was very much a whirlwind romance. And within weeks, he'd actually taken her to the top of the Dromo in Florence. He'd wheezed his way up because he was a bit porky. He was sort of quite (laughs) middle-aged by then. And um, he'd proposed to her. And she accepted. Yes. I mean, it wasn't the most romantic of proposals. You know, he kind of said, you you know, more or less, you will marry me. Um, You will like this. And she did accept. They shared a love of music, uh, Henning and, and Elizabeth. Who did he take her to meet in the German town of Beirut? Yes, very early in their courtship, he took her to the, you know, the home of the Wagner family, very much associated with Bayreuth and the opera festival, because he was a friend of the family. And he'd been taught the piano by Franz Liszt, you know, also associated with the Wagner family. So very well connected. So he took her to that family And she met Wagner's widow, the composer's widow, Cosima. 
it was a way of introducing her to a different his society, which was extremely arist- aristocratic. I mean, the sort of class system in Germany was even more restrictive and codified than the English one. And so she'd kind of gone from a middle class family and suddenly being sort of jettisoned into this aristocratic blue blood Prussian world, which she had no experience of. She couldn't even speak the same German language. Do you think she felt out of her depth, Joyce? Is there any sense about how she is still a young woman would have responded to meeting Wagner's widow and and Prussian aristocrats? I think she managed to, you know, get through that. She found it difficult later on after they were married. But I think her mother had reservations because her mother, there's some letters that survived by her. And although she's initially overjoyed that, you know, Elizabeth has landed this blue blood, I think she then realizes the implications of that, that, look, this is an incredibly different world. She's going to be living far away from us in a different country, different culture and different, you know, level of society. So I think her mother had reservations. You know, she was young. She probably didn't really know what she was in for. She soon found out. Not long after she became Countess von Arnhem, she became a mother. How did how did she feel about being a mother? She she was very ill-prepared and I think she found it incredibly difficult, not least because she had a very painful pregnancy and childbirth. I suspect she had postnatal depression. I mean, she went on to have five children, but her husband, the Count von Arnhem, was like determined she would give birth to a son. And she kept giving birth to daughter after daughter. She had four daughters before she eventually produced the heir. And after that, there was no more children. And I think, you know, that was her, to her great relief. Uh, the family at first were living in Berlin, but where did they they end up moving? They moved after a, a couple of years. He had a large estate near the Baltic and, a, you know, a wooded estate of farmland. And there was an old schloss, you know, like a, a very old manor house. It was r- totally run down. Elizabeth fell in love with that house and transformed it. And I think she really liked the solitude there, not least because her husband was away in Berlin a great deal of the time. And she was very happy there. It got her away from Berlin society where, you know, there was a lot of social obligations. So she seemed to be perfectly happy at this remote Baltic estate, reading, planting a garden and eventually beginning to write. What kind of garden did she plant? What would it have looked like? There was roses and hollyhocks and there was a small garden outside the main house, but then it was all forested kind of woodland. So very sylvan is how E.M. Forster, who came later, described it. But she was, you know, she was obsessed as her father was by planting gardens and, you know, she's ordering seeds and catalogues. And she's building or creating this beautiful garden in this remote estate and she's mother to, to children. When did she begin writing? She began writing in the late 1890s and we have in her diaries, she talks about having begun her first book 
And her first book, you can't call it a novel. It's more like a fictional chronicle of her life on this remote estate. And it, it's slightly satirical. Well, it's very satirical. She pokes fun at the, the Germans around her and the Prussian society. There's not really a, a narrative, but this book was called Elizabeth and Her German Garden. It was published anonymously. She didn't want her name on the cover. Why was that, do you think, Joyce? I think at the time she didn't want, uh, it wasn't sort of seemly for a Prussian countess to be sullying her hands writing a commercial book. That was one reason. But I actually think there was another reason. And that was that because some of the characters are quite identifiable, I don't think she wanted the trail of breadcrumbs to be traced back to her and the, that she was poking fun at the, the German people around her. I think that would have probably been even more scandalous than writing a commercial book. So I think that was, you know, it suited her to be anonymous. You know, she, conti- she never published under her own name in her life. Long after there was no need, you know, she, she could have, but she chose not to. And how was that, that first book received? It was a huge success internationally. You know, it was in Australia, it was, re, you know, reviewed widely and America and even the subcontinent, you know, all the English speaking world. It was hugely, hugely popular. Why do you think? What, what struck a chord about this book about a German garden? I think it was the tone of voice. It, you know, it is witty. It is a funny book. Her observations of, uh, she just, she called her husband in it. She didn't give him his name. She just called him the man of wrath. <laughs> <laughs> and the man of wrath is a rather, you know, pompous and pontificating character. And, you know, I think that tone really gel, particularly with women readers. I think that's really what um, was part of its success. So as the the success grew and and her popularity grew, how much curiosity was there about who this mysterious Elizabeth was? There was huge curiosity, you know, around the world in papers like in New York and San Francisco, there was like full pages, who is Elizabeth? And there was all sorts of speculation was she even a woman? You know, people were speculating. That's a popular then, one with um, anonymous women authors, isn't it? You know, it must be a man. <laughs> it must be a guy. Yes, that's right. Uh, yes, I found that one particularly amusing. But then there was names being floated around of various German aristocrats, English-born German aristocrats, um, who never had any kind of writing credentials whatsoever. But, you know, there was speculation. Was she... Princess Henry of Pless, was she Princess this? And did anyone uncover the truth? It took a few years and it eventually the, there was there was a bit of speculation that it was um, that it was the Countess von Arnhem. But it was only a couple of years later when an article appeared that clearly had some kind of intelligence because it could it described the Beecham family. It had enough information that go, oh, yes, somebody here has got got the intelligence. So, yes, it did come out eventually. As, as readers were falling in love with this depiction of this sort of bucolic North German garden, things at home were not always as, as humorous or as rosy as she was depicting in the book. Why did the police turn up at that schloss one afternoon? The police turned up to arrest the Count von Arnhem one day and he was charged with embezzlement and he went to prison. Now, 
how much truth was in the charges, we don't know. Henning was quite a spiky character and he had made quite a number of enemies at a bank where he was a director. And it may have been trumped up, but nonetheless, he spent several months in jail. And it happened, you know, in the early 1900s at an extraordinary time for Elizabeth because she had just given birth to her fourth daughter when he was arrested and jailed. And she was, so she was left with, you know, an infant daughter, three other young girls, and to run this vast estate and ma- try and manage that. And what she did was she actually wrote a children's book. It's the only children's book she wrote, and it's a wonderful romantic story, you know, very sentimental, illustrated by the, you know, the lovely artist Kate Greenway. So it's a real confection of this happy family, you know, all sleigh rides and snow and Easter egg hunts and all this. No and drawing of daddy in prison to be found. Not, no, not a drawing. I think she, she did visit him in prison and she saved that experience, I think, for a much later book. You know, nothing was wasted with Elizabeth. <laughs> Once she she had all of these children, she began bringing over tutors from England, including some who would go on to become very famous in their own right. Who taught Elizabeth's kids? Well, the most famous one who came out to tutor her young children was uh, the writer E.M. Forster, you know, Passage to India, Forster. He was then a young Cambridge graduate and he'd come out for a few months over, you know, uh, over the summer, basically, to teach the children. And he arrived and he, he actually found Elizabeth incredibly difficult. He left a very funny account of his time with her at the Schloss. And at that time, he was just beginning to write. He was working on his first novel, uh, Where Angels Fear to Tread. And by that stage, Elizabeth was, you know, the big name, you know, famous writer. And he was this embryonic, you know, probably somewhat insecure young writer. And that was made even worse by he showed Elizabeth some of his writing of that book. And she could be a terrible tease. And she kept flip-flopping as she went chapter by chapter through it, saying, oh, this chapter's good. Oh, no, I've gone on, you know, this one's, this one's pretty terrible. This one makes me want to have a hot bath, you know, this kind of thing. So, so she absolutely tormented him. And um, I don't think he ever forgave her. He thought she could be cruel. So he, his time there was, was quite, a, quite fraught, I think, even though, you know, they, at times they had musical evenings and even danced sort of the Highland fling with her. But basically he found her a pretty, pretty difficult and character. what was he like as a tutor? What did Ian Forster teach the little Von Adams? He didn't have to teach very much, actually. In fact, in his letters back to his mother, he's basically saying how little he has to do. So he's teaching them English, I think a bit of Greek, not very much at all. And, um, uh, you know, he'd go on picnics with them. They'd, they'd tease him. They obviously had their mother's streak in that. So he didn't, you know, it was hardly an arduous thing. There was plenty of time for sort of, you know, walking in the forest and um, writing his book. Although they, they had a prickly relationship at times, he then joined Elizabeth and her kids in England for a holiday. What were they doing? They were having a caravan holiday, a horse-drawn caravan holiday. Was that like sort of Victorian glamping or what was that all about? That was, it was like a gypsy 
gypsy caravan, horse-drawn. At that time, it had become quite popular among the sort of, you know, the middle classes to slum it and, and, and you know, and to have a slightly bohemian holiday. And it was, you know, it was before Kenneth Graham kind of immortalised that caravan and trip in Wind in the Willows. I was very surprised that E.M. Forster would join her on that trip, let alone sleep under haystacks and in barns. But anyway, he did. <laughs> and her idea was to have a holiday with the kids, with the, the, the daughters, but also to use the caravan holiday um, as the raw material for a book she wanted to write. But the holiday didn't quite turn out as she expected because in terms of the weather, it was an utter disaster. It was one of the wettest summers England had ever, ever known. So they were sort of pushing this caravan, you know, around sodden fields and getting lost on country lanes. And she would occasionally be like tossing E.M. Forster biscuits and fruit from the caravan, you know, like he's a horse. Um, <laughs> so, so it was an absolute disaster and they abandoned it after, oh God, within a month, I think. is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. the famous author that she took off to visit in the midst of all this soggy caravanning? She went off to visit H.G. Wells. She'd met H.G. Wells a short time before and he'd invited her. So she was very impressed by Wells and she went down to visit Wells and his wife Jane at their country home and I think she was very quickly smitten with H.G. Wells. It was at a time when, you know, she was still living in Germany. I think she was starved of intellectual stimulation there. And a part of Wells was he was a satirist and Elizabeth was a satirist. So they had lots of lively conversations. And I think she was very, very taken with him. And although she became friends with Jane as well, it was Wells who was the focus of her attention. And, and what kind of relationship did she go on to have with him? Is that known? A few years later, her husband died. And soon after that, she appears to have embarked on an affair with him. Certainly reading her diaries, it reads to me. I mean, she never said she was far too discreet. However, H.G. Wells left a monumentally indiscreet account of the rather vigorous affair in which he claimed they broke the hotel beds of Europe several times. So he wrote this kiss and tell account. Um, was that published while, while she was still alive? Oh, God, no. It was published after Wells himself died. He'd written it, but it wasn't published until about the 1980s when, you know, she was long dead. Whatever the nature of that relationship, it was very tempestuous. Um, they're always falling out, they're making up, they're having trips together, they're traveling around Europe together, all with the knowledge of Jane Wells, who, if she didn't approve, she kind of gave her assent to it. And he even wrote some of his, one of his books, partly in Switzerland at her chalet, where she moved to after she became a widow. And so their relationship 
was very tempestuous for several years. Then they, you know, they fell out. It ended in tears. He, you know, moved on to much younger women. And then much later in life, they reconnected and actually developed quite a good friendship later on. You mentioned that she built a, a chalet with some of this money she was making from, from writing her books. What did that house look like? Well, it, was, it looked like a hotel. It was a Swiss chalet with 16 bedrooms and about five toilets, which she was inordinately proud of. And people would come up to it and think it was a hotel and they could book in. Um, <laughs> it had a beautiful view of the mountains. It was the place where she wrote and she built herself a separate little chalet just down the path from it, which is, is still there, actually. That was her writing chalet. She always created separate spaces um, in which she could, could write. And she moved between London. She had kept, always kept a flat or a house in, in England. She was happiest, I think, in, in Switzerland, where she would spend big slabs of the year. It became a very sociable place. You know, she would invite lots of guests for summers there. And, you know, she'd have like parties throughout the summer with quite prominent people. People like Bertrand Russell would come and Dora Russell. Opera singers, artists, anyone who wasn't boring could come there. <laughs> After things had, had cooled with H.G. Wells, she met the man who'd become her second husband, Frank Russell. Tell me about him, Joyce. Yeah, Frank Russell was an earl and he was the older brother of Bertrand Russell, the philosopher. But he was a very different kettle of fish from Bertrand Russell. He was a bigamist. A bigamist? He was a bigamist. He'd gone to jail for bigamy. And by the time he met Elizabeth, and it had been all in the papers internationally, papers in Australia gave great coverage to this scandalous sort of bigamy trial. It was a very theatrical trial held in the House of Lords. Why, why the House of Lords rather than, than a regular court? Because as a, he was a peer. And as a peer, he was entitled to be tried in the House of Lords. Now, normally the House of Lords, you know, uh, trials are held for like really serious things like treason and like Anne Boleyn where I went before the House of Lords. So it wasn't often that they were dealing with matters of bigamy. It was highly theatrical. You know, all these bewigged and gowned lords and Archbishop of Canterbury, they're all there. And how did he defend himself? I mean, what, what was his excuse for, for marrying twice? He said he didn't really know the law in America where he, he married his second wife, even though he was a barrister, that he didn't know it. And he thought he had divorced his first wife in, in Las Vegas, I think. It was on the, on the to-do list in Las Vegas. It was on the to-do <laughs> list. Yeah. So, you know, Elizabeth would have known that. She couldn't not have known about that. And he actually served time in, in prison after this trial in the House of Lords. Yes, he, he spent about three months. It wasn't terribly onerous, though, because he was a, you know, a lord. Uh, he was allowed things like a bathtub and his writing material. Uh, I think the only thing he complained about was he couldn't get his pipe or something like that. There was something really minor. So, uh, so what would have made Elizabeth successful, wealthy, many admirers? Why would she have chosen this man to, to marry? Look, I think he was a very a passionate figure. And, you know, at the time she had, you know, she'd been a widow from a not terribly successful marriage in which they had little in common. 
she was just picking herself up from the end of the relationship with H.G. Wells when this very blustery, and he was very articulate. He was obviously a very charming man, but there was a very different side to him. I mean, he was a bully, but, you know, bullies don't reveal themselves initially like that. So he was charming and he was passionate and he wrote a really, really ardent letters. Although, you know, she later kind of denied that, you know, she, she made out like she wasn't that keen on him or something. She clearly was, you know, she was absolutely smitten. So that relationship, you know, developed over a couple of years. But she started to see, even before they married, she started to see this, his moods and he was very moody. It was possibly exacerbated by the use of cocaine and he was a gambler, a high stakes gambler. So, you know, there was something of an addictive personality there, I suspect. But despite her reservations, she married him. Was it covered in the press, that marriage? No, she went to great lengths to keep it secret. She married him during World War One, and she wanted it hushed up because by that stage, she had an adult daughter living in Germany and she feared that it would make life difficult for the daughter, the adult daughter in Germany, if it was known. So it was kept out of the press, at least in Britain, but it became front page news in America when they were sort of described as England's most glamorous couple and it broke there. So then, of course, you know, the the news got out. But yeah, she had, you know, used all her network and she was very well connected by then to keep it out of the British papers. So they were married in in 1916. Mm -hmm. What news did Elizabeth get in June of that year? That was probably the worst news of her life. She learned in June that year that her youngest daughter, who had gone to school, was at school in Germany, had died of pneumonia. She simply got a telegram saying her daughter was dead. So no, she a, didn't know she was ill. There was no warning at all. She knew nothing. Communication was really difficult because it was wartime. So she just got a telegraph saying that her daughter had died and it took her several weeks to, to know that she had died. Her grief was very complex because what compounded it was two things. One, that daughter, that she was only 16, the daughter and Elizabeth had had a very acrimonious parting before the girl had gone back to Germany to school. They'd fallen out. Elizabeth just refused to speak to her, didn't even kiss her goodbye. So, you know, they'd left on really bad terms. And the other thing that compounded it was World War I. And the fact that, you know, her family was basically torn apart, you know, to be Anglo-German. So, you know, she had her adult daughter in Germany, plus this younger one at school in Germany, while the others were in Britain. So she couldn't really grieve publicly for that girl. In contrast to her sister, Charlotte, who lost a son just about the day before. He was a military person and had gone down. And so they could publicly grieve him. But she couldn't grieve her daughter publicly. You know, I think it affected her for the rest of her life because, you know, one of the things you're looking for when you go through someone's papers is not just what's said or what's written, but what's not said. And Elizabeth, throughout her life, never forgot people's anniversaries, birthdays, even the day her husband was arrested, she would remember 30 years later, even to what she was wearing. But What's not in those journals is any reference to that daughter who died. 
She never, ever referred to it. And I think it was just a grief that was too deep to contemplate. It's so telling that that silence around around that loss, because imagine that she felt terrible guilt as well, particularly if they parted in an argument, if, if that was their last interaction. What was happening in her relationship with the Wicked Earl in, in these months? Uh, he was no comfort to her at all after her daughter died. He uh, was berating her, arguing. You know, she was coping with the daughter's death and her rapidly unravelling marriage. And within, uh, I think, about three months after the girl died, the relationship with Frank, the Wicked Earl, was so bad that she left him a note that she was leaving and she caught a boat. She travelled up to Liverpool and she sailed across the Atlantic to join two of her daughters who were living over there. She'd sent them over during the war. Basically, she ran away. To America. And she had no idea. No, no. she, She didn't tell him where he was going. She went to California to join her daughter. And eventually she wrote to him and told him where she was. And to her great surprise, he arrived in California. He turned up around Christmas time and she, I think, hoped for, you know, a reconciliation. She had stopped writing her journal then. So all that I had to work on was the observations of her daughter who wrote about it. And obviously she disliked Frank intensely and she talked about the arguments continuing. But nonetheless, Elizabeth decided she would go back to England with Frank. She convinced herself that he was now Frank 2.0, you know, in that very classic way. They promised to reform. They're going to be great. It's all going to be fine. And she returned to their home in England and hoped for the best. Of course, it didn't turn out like that. The moods, the tempers... Was he violent, do you know, Joyce, or what what kind of relationship was happening between them? It seemed to be more psychological, but I can't quite rule that out because one of the letters that really surprised me in her collection was the only letter that survives from her sister Charlotte, who wrote to Elizabeth after Frank died in the early 30s. And she wrote to Elizabeth saying, I always feared he would do you some deadly harm. And that kind of gave me a shock. She doesn't refer to any physical violence in that relationship, but it seems more psychological and more controlling because she talks about how she has to ask his permission to go outside the house and it nearly always ends in tears anyway. So he's basically confining her. Did she write about a relationship like that in any of her books? If she didn't write about it in her her diaries or her letters, can you, you find depictions of it in her fiction? Absolutely. Her book, The Very Gothic Tale Called Vera, is basically a story of domestic abuse and coercive control. And it appears to be based on on him. It's a, you know, it's quite a terrifying tale. Although the first part of it's quite witty. There's certainly a lot of humor in there, but as it progresses, it becomes more and more terrifying. Did they actually divorce formally? They didn't divorce formally. In fact, she remained the Countess Russell to the rest of her life. And, you know, that quite possibly was because, A, it was much harder then for a woman to get divorced. The standard of things they had to prove was much higher than a man divorcing the wife. But also, I think 
that she would not have wanted her dirty linen aired in public. God, if his bigamy trial got massive international coverage, you imagine what a divorce trial would bring. When things ended with Frank, that wasn't the end of her romantic entanglements. Who did she begin a romance with when she was 54? Well, I take my hat to her, <laughs> off to her with this one. A young Cambridge graduate came <laughs> to do some work cataloguing her books. He was about 26. He was dark, handsome, if not terribly tall, but neither was she. And she embarked on about a 10-year relationship with this young man by the name of Alexander Frere. And she introduced him to a literary world. And he went on to become a very successful publisher, you know, influential in the careers of Graham Greene and people like that. And they became kind of confidants. They'd share very gossipy letters. I think, you know, she knew there was no future. I mean, he was going to always going to, you know, eventually turn to someone his own age, which is what happened. But nonetheless, for 10 years, they were constantly in each other's company. They would be out together in London. So presumably she didn't make much secret of it in her circle. And he was a really important part of her life and, and went on to publish some of her later books. Was that a relationship that she wrote about either in directly in her journals or in a fiction? She wrote a lot about it in her journals and some of their correspondence survives, their letters to each other. But she wrote a book I really like called Love. And it's based on a relationship between an older woman who marries a much younger man. And what I really like about that book is she puts center stage a sexually active older woman. And, you know, it deals with the double standards by which older women in a young relationship are treated and aging. In that sense, it's it very much ahead of her time, as a lot of her books were. Was she a woman who was anxious about aging, do you think, Joyce? Oh, I think she was very much so. I mean, she, she was very aware of time passing. It seems reading your book that, that eventually Elizabeth moved on from loving a series of unsatisfying men to loving actual dogs who seemed to prove much more faithful. How important were dogs in her life? Oh, they were very, very important. I mean, dogs don't answer back and they don't tell secrets. So they don't mind how that. many wrinkles you've got, dogs. <laughs> they, no, they love them all. She, look, she'd always had dogs. And by the time she got into her late 50s and 60s, she had moved from her chalet to the south of France where she started acquiring, I think she had about six dogs in total, and she would kind of rescue them and she'd take them in her car to visit Somerset Morn and, and you know, he must have been thrilled. <laughs> so she had this pack of little dogs. The dogs got she even bought one as an impulse buy one day walking through Harrods. You know, as she do, she bought a spaniel and took him back to her place in the south of France at great expense, and completely was completely doted. You know, smitten with that dog. That was probably one of her favourites. She'd already lived through one world war, and then of course the Second World War breaks out while she's living in the south of France. What did she do this time? For a while, she was determined to stay. She was in her early 70s then, and she was writing like, oh, you know, she wrote to her daughter, more or less, I've got the means to kill myself. What does it matter if I die a few years earlier? Which must have alarmed her daughter inordinately. So initially, she was determined to stay. But then her house was taken over by sort of French soldiers. They 
moved in and she had sort of gun emplacements in her garden hidden in the rosemary bushes. And then all of a sudden she decided she was going to flee. So she got herself on a boat and once again she crossed to America to join her daughter there. And she didn't really intend to stay there. You know, this was always going to be for the duration of the war. Um, and it's not what happened. You know, she, she didn't come back. But it, all, it always seemed like a very temporary thing, so much so that she spent the last 18 months of her life after she got to America living like a well-heeled gypsy, moving from hotel to hotel. Often they were rather shabby hotels because she'd taken that dog that she impulse bought in Harrods with her. She couldn't bear to be parted from him. So most places wouldn't accept her dog. And he was, by the sounds of it, quite, you know, he wasn't trained. He wasn't very well behaved. It's a Harrods dog. It's a painful dog. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So she kind of catered for him and he was her companion. Um, How did they get around? How did she travel about as a well-heeled gypsy? Well, she bought a car and she could barely see through the steering wheel because she was only five foot. And she did complain that everything in America was so big, including the cars. She was never a great driver to start with. So I I can imagine there would be quite a few hair raising trips. So she would drive around um, up and down the coast and she, you know, she would kind of follow the weather. She didn't want cold by that stage. So she settled down in the, you know, the warmer East Coast of America and moved into a hotel. She had a daughter living further north in upstate New York who would come and visit her. She didn't want to move in with the daughter. I don't think she really got on with the daughter's husband. And so, and she wanted her independence. So she, you know, she lived in hotels and lived on boiled eggs and potatoes, I think, and continued to write. And um, she fled from France with part of her her last book, which was a book by the name of Mr. Skeffington. And um, that was a book that kind of, it had centre stage a Jewish character, which, again, quite an unusual thing to do at that period. And um, she finished that book. It was her last book. And just as it came out, Time magazine listed it as one of its best books of the year, which was pretty good because the other competition was Hemingway and uh, How Green Was My Valley and other books like that. So, you know, that was, you know, how well received it was. She also knew Hollywood had come calling and they wanted to turn it into a movie. And it was eventually made into a movie with Betty Davis and Claude Rains. She didn't live to see it, but she knew it was, it was in the pipeline. Was her death unexpected, Joyce? No, no. I mean, she had, um, she caught, it was, it was, you know, she, she had the flu and she had a short illness. You know, she was concerned enough to, she cancelled a couple of engagements. That was about all and rang her daughter who came down and joined her. Um, but she still had, you know, her sense of humour, right? She was still writing her journal. And in fact, one of her last entries, she's complaining about, she could be terribly kind of spiky. She was complaining about listening to an opera of um, Madame Butterfly and she disliked the squawking soprano and she wrote this line about no wonder he wouldn't marry her. And that was one of her final entries. She Um, died as she lived, it sounds like. (laughs) Absolutely. She did. Her novels sort of fell by the way quite quickly, I, I think, after she died. Who advocated for them to be brought back into print? Well, 
they came back into print in the 1980s. She died in the early 40s. So they've been out of print by about 40 years. When the Australian publisher Carmen Khalil, she was familiar with Elizabeth von Arnhem. But one of her other writers in that stable was Dora Russell, Bertrand Russell's former wife. And Dora told Carmen Khalil about the backstory of Vera and how it was based on uh, Elizabeth's marriage to Frank Russell. So, you know, of course, Carmen was very interested in that. And she went on to publish a number of Elizabeth's books, including uh, Vera. And in that sense, it was Carmen who christened her Elizabeth von Arnhem. I mean, perhaps today you'd make a different choice, but um, she... Because before that, what, what had been the name on her books when, she was, when they were published in her lifetime? They were published either as just Elizabeth or by the very clunky subtitle, Elizabeth, author of Elizabeth and Her German Gardens. <laughs> so very clunky. But of course, by the 80s, you know, nobody would recognise Elizabeth and, and that single name would be more associated with the British monarch than anything else. So she, so it was really thanks to Virago that um, she has the name that we know her by today. So it was that, that darker book about a coercive control or an yeah. unhappy domestic relationship that first brought her back into publication. But it was The Enchanted April, that sort of fluffier romantic fantasy that seems to have won new readers during COVID. Yes. I mean, that I found intriguing. I mean, I, uh, there's an, an, a number of newspapers have commented on how the sales have gone up like dramatically and it's been bobbing up on, you know, recommended reading for pandemic. I think people have found, you know, we long for something. It's, you know, it's set in a, in a, a fictional Portofino. It's in a castle. It's romantic. You know, it's a joyful book and very much about the power of love and transcendence. So I think people have really gelled with that during um, the pandemic. Uh, and of course, it's its 100th anniversary this year, which is interesting too. And it was made into a film. So and quite a good film. You know, it's attracted new readers and, and viewers that way as well. All the, this time, Joyce, that you've spent reading Elizabeth's fictions and her letters and her diaries, do you think that you would have liked her if you'd got to know her in person? I think I'd have found her a very tricky person. I would have liked her independence and her courage, but I think she could be very tricky and cruel and very hard to get to know. I mean, she would be great witty company, you know, as one of her friends commented after she died. What a devil she was, but what good fun. And I think that was a very accurate summary. Maybe uh, she's a good woman to get to know through a book. I think she's a great woman to get to know through her books. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing her story on, on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. It's a great pleasure. Joyce's book is The Countess from Kirribilli. I'm Sarah Kanoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.